And in the Christian tradition, uh, Christmas is not a day. It is how many? On the first day? Yeah, 12 days of Christmas. Uh, and the 12th day of Christmas is a, a festival called Epiphany. And so we've taken the sort of seven weeks of that this year. Uh, Bill in the back back there. I got emails said my job was in jeopardy. Bill did such a good job. Uh, Bill laid out for us sort of the situation in Palestine at that time and sort of the hope and the expectation and what was going on. Uh, Susan then followed up by looking at uh, the, the female characters within the story. Of course, Mary, but also Anna and Elizabeth. And she's done that for two weeks. Now, starting next week, we're going to do two weeks of looking at the two Christmas narratives, first Luke and then Matthew. Uh, the final week, I'll be in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, and then uh, Susan will come back, and she's going to talk to us about epiphany and the symbolism of light. What we're going to do today is something I've not done before, and it's just one of those deals that's kind of puzzled me in the back of my head uh, for years, which is this whole business of the fulfillment of Scripture. The idea that part of the Jewish tradition is this hope, this expectation that that was laid out for us in, in several prophecies, several scriptures in the Old Testament, and that in the events of the New Testament, particularly the events around the ministry of Jesus, uh, the theme of fulfillment. Now, I think very often we think of that in terms of if you look at the bulletins or Christmas cards. Uh, most often you're quoting the passage from Isaiah, which everybody knows. But it's actually a much bigger issue than that because um, the Apostle Paul, when he very first, as we'll see, when he very first starts out, he says about the Christian faith that what happened in the ministry and the life of Jesus, particularly the death and resurrection, was, as he says, in fulfillment of the scriptures. The Gospel of Mark, who has no Christmas story at all, casts the entire life of Jesus in fulfillment of scripture. And so when we get to Matthew and then to Luke, which we'll look at the next two weeks, that is a very major theme. So today, we're just going to kind of wander around and look at this whole idea of what is it that was fulfilled. Bill talked about expectation, and as we'll see, not all the expectations can be fulfilled. If you've got some Jews who are expecting a warrior Messiah who will kick out Rome, and other Jews who are expecting a prince of peace, those are mutually exclusive. So what was picked up on? What was picked up on by Jesus? And surprisingly for some of us maybe, what was picked up on by Paul? Because, in fact, Paul's unique ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles is actually the fulfillment of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah. So this morning, we're just going to kind of wander around here. So Christmas, wonderful time of the year, all kinds of symbolism that you and I uh, enjoy. Uh, this comes out in lots of themes around Christmas time. Now, one, one symbol that we use, notice this morning, uh, in confirmation, the lead teachers were, were actually using the, the unity candle, uh, not unity candle, the, the uh, advent wreath. But traditionally, there are four candles surround. And by the way, this is your final exam. Uh, <laughs> do y'all know what the four symbolize? Joy, hope, love, love peace. Okay. Uh, joy and peace, of course, come to us from the message the angels gave to the shepherds. And then love comes to us from the Gospel of John, among other places. And then, of course, hope is bigger. Now, th this is actually, uh, this is, uh, you're going to get this, this is extra, okay? Uh, have you ever noticed that only in the Methodist Church we have a pink candle? Does anybody know what that's about? 
from 1939 until 1968, it's been a while, the, uh, the Methodist Church had its own lectionary readings. And on the third Sunday of Advent, they read the passage from Isaiah says, the desert shall bloom like a rose. That went away in 1968, but the pink candle stayed. I'm thinking it's a marketing opportunity for Cokesbury. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but that's what's going bad. That, but you're right. Here are the four themes. And so as we do Advent reads, we remind ourselves. Now, all these, all these are woven through the Christmas narrative, woven through the Christmas story. But if you're going to look for an overarching theme, I think it's the one that supports all the others. I think you'd have to say that the theme behind Christmas, even though joy fits, hope fits, I mean, all it fits, Hope is the dominant image, and it, it, it sort of underlies everything. The statement is that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises and promises that were made specifically through the Hebrew Scriptures, not just the prophets. Matthew, in particular, when he gets going, he's quoting everything in the world. Some are prophecies, some are not. And so we get Christmas cards, we get bulletins, and the, the one that is most often uh, done is from Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born a son is given, and then we see that all the time. Uh, now, have got any handle Messiah f- people here? You love the Messiah? I did not know this until about two years ago. Uh, if you look at Handel's Messiah, it's, it, it's an interesting thing. Handel's Messiah is a joyous celebration of the birth of Christ and his ministry. But if you actually look at it, 36 of the 52 pieces, two-thirds, over two-thirds, are not from the Gospels. You know where they're from? The Old Testament. And it begins, as you know, with the creation story. And so most of the music in the Messiah celebrating who Jesus is is actually music quoting from Isaiah, Genesis, all the various books of the Old Testament. And so the Messiah's basic message is that God made some promises in the Old Testament and that these promises are fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Uh, so, but the ones we're probably the most familiar with are the ones that are actually in the two Christmas stories. They're in uh, the opening chapters of Matthew. They're in the opening chapters of Luke. Uh, and those are what we're very familiar with. Um, and Matthew's is very interesting because it seems like for Matthew. Now, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Now, would a Jewish audience care about the fulfillment of Jewish scripture? Yes. And so his audience cares. And so he, more than the other three Gospels combined, makes this very serious attempt to connect pretty much everything in the story to a prophecy of the Old Testament. So when the, when the angel announces to Joseph, he says, this fulfilled prophecy. When we're told that Jesus is being born in Bethlehem, fulfills prophecy. The death of the children in Bethlehem, that horrendous event, Fulfills prophecy. When the family has to flee to Egypt for their safety. Fulfills prophecy. When they come back and do not return to Bethlehem. But again, Joseph is warned in a dream. It's not safe. You know, we got rid of one Herod. There's another one. He's just as bad. So you need to go north up to Nazareth. It fulfills a prophecy. And so you get this almost this liturgy in Matthew. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, Scholars have noticed something very interesting about Matthew. He does not quote the way you and I would quote. For example, uh, he may not quote the prophet correctly. 
There's one time where he quotes two prophets, half a verse from each, and puts them together and thinks that it's one prophet. He sometimes does not know what prophet he's talking about. Because when he have the passage, he says, and he says, the prophet Jeremiah said, well, the prophet Jeremiah never said that. The prophet Zechariah said that. So he might be off just a little bit there. He may even draw material that isn't even prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you know what that would actually be a reference to in the Old Testament? Who's called out of Egypt? Israel. Yeah, the children of Israel. Yet for, for, for Matthew, he sees that as a, as a prophecy. Sometimes no one's quite sure what he's quoting. This one has bug, bugged people for, for, for centuries. He is called a Nazarene. There is no known reference anywhere to what that could possibly be. Some scholars think, well, as near as we can get is the word Nazarene uh, is similar to the word Nazareth. And so you might have some language there. But, you know, Matthew, everything that happens related to the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of hope and God's promises. Now, Luke is a different story. Luke, like Matthew, has a Christmas story. But one of the real differences here is that Luke is not writing to Jews. Luke is writing to Gentiles. Now, do Gentiles care as much about the fulfillment of Jewish scripture? No. But they care about fulfillment. And so what you see in Luke is a lot of language about fulfillment, but yet Luke does not make the effort to connect to scriptures the way Matthew would. Um, but there's just as much hope and fulfillment. And so instead of sprinkling the narrative with passages from the Old Testament, Luke will, will have a couple of verses, and he says, this was in fulfillment. And then he'll give you some examples. Um, he adds stories to the birth narrative that were not found anywhere else in which fulfillment of long-anticipated hope. For example, remember the story of Simeon? Jesus is, uh, what, uh, 10, 12 days? He's presented at the temple. And as he's presented at the temple by his parents, there's a couple of really interesting characters there. One is Simeon who we're told is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Now that's some of that code language that, that Bill may erase for you. It's one of the ways that hope of, of fulfilling God's promises was worded. So seeing Jesus, Simeon comments, now that your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So Simeon, beholding the baby, the baby hasn't done a thing. He's not had a ministry. He's not taught parables. He's not healed anyone. He's not died on the cross. Just seeing the child, Simeon says, I've seen your salvation, at least the potentiality for it. In the same passage, Luke gives us the story of Anna. Now, she's not looking for the consolation of Israel. She's looking for the redemption of Israel. Slightly different wording. Same idea. The hope of fulfillment of God's promises. And, of course, when she sees the infant Jesus, she praises God for that infant. Uh, these references that we see in Matthew and in Luke are the ones that most often are going to make their way onto a Christmas card. They're going to make their way onto a, an Advent or Christmas bulletin at the church. They'll be using posters. They'll be, they'll be posted all over. Ironically, though, these are not the most important scriptures with the possible exception of the one from Isaiah, um, a son is given to us. Some of this other stuff that, for example, Matthew quotes in particular, doesn't ever seem to be brought up again. Uh, it is not the ones that the, the earliest Christians used. 
Now, Bill reminded us at the beginning of this series that, that the age in which the, our faith was given birth was an age of rampant hope. It was also an age of rampant oppression. And the people were occupied by foreign power, by Rome. They were crushed and brutalized by the taxes. And they longed, they longed for everything that God had promised across the ages that that would come true. Um, and so that becomes the setting for the story. It's an age of hope. It's a wide variety of, of expectations. Many hope for a political messiah who would overthrow Rome, uh, Rome a messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of David. There are many examples of that. Others hope for something called the ingathering of the tribes. This is one of the ones that Jesus seemed to pay attention to, and he did some particular acts to evoke this. Uh, the idea that the, the children of Israel who had been scattered for hundreds of years going back to 722 when the Assyrian Empire wiped out the northern kingdom and took them off into exile and then a couple hundred years later when the Babylonian Empire came wiped out the southern kingdom took them into exile at the time of Jesus we know from Josephus and other sources that nine out of every ten Jews lived outside Palestine less than one of ten Jews in the world actually lived in the Holy Land the rest were some, a part of something called the diaspora. They had been scattered. So, so one of the dreams that you have in the first century is someday God would reassemble the tribes of Israel, would bring back together that what had been scattered for five to six hundred years. There had been no 12 tribes for centuries, but the hope was that God would do that. God would bring them back together. Some like those in Qumran, actually hoped for two messiahs. They hoped for a political, a Davidic messiah, and they hoped who would reestablish the nation uh, the way it was. They actually also hoped for a priestly messiah of Aaron, and when the people first read the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is one of the things that really surprised people. Nobody, nobody had ever heard of this before. Political messiah, yeah. Now, what about a priestly messiah of Aaron? Well, somebody who would establish the correct worship of God. Of course, the Qumran, the Essenes are outside Jerusalem because they believe that the correct worship of God is not being done at the temple. So they longed for that. Now, this is the setting in which Christians saw the story of Jesus, interpreted the story of Jesus, and proclaimed the story of Jesus as a, as a, a story of hope. And perhaps, and Paul, of course, does not have a Christmas story, but Paul has the oldest reference to the birth of Jesus. It predates the first gospel by at least 30 years. And it's worth saying. This is what he says in Galatians. He's just writing to the church about our faith. But when the fullness of time had come, and there's that, that sense of hope and fulfillment. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman. That, my friends, is the first Christmas story. It's seminal. It's very brief. He doesn't narrate it in great detail. But there it is, born under the law. In order to redeem those who were born under, who were under the law, that would be who? Well, under the Jewish lobby, the Jews. But then what he says, so that we might receive adoption. In Paul's ministry, who were the people who got adopted into the covenant? The Gentiles. So Paul's here saying that, that the birth of Jesus in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, and it has an impact both for the Jewish people and for the Gentiles. And so Paul expresses this core, core conviction. 
Jesus came to fulfill hope and God's promises. Now, not all the hopes were filled. Not all could be. We had, as Bill shared with you, all over the map things we're hoping for. Rather, what we see is selected aspects of the hope. That makes a difference. So when Paul dips in, when each of the gospel writers dip in, and they, they see this sea, this little ocean of various kinds of hopes and expectation. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus is doing his ministry in a period of time when people have all kinds of hopes. Jesus did not try to attach himself to or to evoke every hope. There's some very particular hopes that he did. And then, of course, Paul did the same thing. Paul, the early Christian writer, frames the very content of the faith in terms of fulfillment. Now, we've looked at this last year when we looked at basic Christian belief. We want to look at the same passage from a little bit different perspective. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is the earliest known summary of the Christian faith. This is a summary that will later be developed and expanded into what we call the Apostles' Creed. And it goes through several evolutions before that. But this is what he says. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, this is a church he started, and apparently they have forgotten some things. Of the good news, or the, the Evangelion, the gospel that I proclaim to you. So this, this for Paul, this is the core. This is the gospel. This is what is important. Which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved. So this is a message of some importance. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. Best guess, we think Paul was converted to the Christian faith within one year of the death of Jesus, possibly two. So Paul is saying even within one year of the death of Jesus, he didn't make this stuff up. There was a core, and he received it, and then he handed it on to other people. Here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the part of the core of our faith is not just what happened to Jesus, that Jesus died, that he rose, but a core piece of our faith is that this is in accordance with the scriptures, uh, in accordance with what God had promised to Israel. Now, the death of Jesus, as you know, was at first devastating. You look at the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them, and they're just downhearted. I mean, it's over. And they're going back back to Galilee. Uh, there is no point in anything in the future. Jesus appears to them, and they have no idea who he is. And that, that, that very, very powerful story. So at the very beginning, it is real clear that the news of the death of Jesus, that reality, was devastating. And it just knocked the wind out of the disciples. Um, but with time, it came to be seen and interpreted in light of the Hebrew Scriptures and the promises of God. Uh, one scripture in particular stands out, and this appears to be the key that unlocked for Christians the understanding of the death of Jesus and how the death of Jesus could be not a negative thing, but in fact could be a positive thing. So when Paul says, I hand on to you that which I received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, Paul does not quote this, but we're pretty sure this is what he's referring to. This is Isaiah 53. It's one of the most beloved passages. Now, very often we do this during Lent, but I just want you to hear it. Who has believed what we have heard? 
And just, just read this to the filter of being a Christian. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So there's nothing spectacular about him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with in, in, infirmity. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised. We held him in no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we counted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That's atonement language. Somebody's suffering for somebody else. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like the sheep that bore its shears in silence, he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He made his grave among the wicked, his tomb with the rich, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit on his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you'd make his life an offering for sin, through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, because he poured out himself to death and was humbled with a number of the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, if you're a Christian, having witnessed the death of Jesus on the cross, and you read that scripture, what's the only conclusion you could reach? Who is the scripture talking about? Never mind that Jews had read this for, for centuries before and understood this in a, in a different way, which is the servant is, in fact, Israel, and it's the corporate nation of Israel. For Christians, this was the key. One who suffers for the sin of others, and God's hand is behind it. And so this appears to be the key that unlocked things. His death was atoning. It was redemptive. It was a part of God's plan. And this became the central message of the faith. So much so that in the book of Acts, we have a series of speeches generally by Peter. And these are just very seminal sort of summaries of the Christian faith. Look what we get in Acts 3. This is Peter's, one of Peter's first speeches. In this way, God fulfilled. He's just talked about the death of Jesus on the cross. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that the Messiah should suffer. And so here we see clearly that the, the crucifixion is not a negative, or not just a negative. It has become the way through which God acts. Now, Paul mentions that Jesus died in accordance with the Scripture and that he was raised in accordance with the Scripture. And anybody who knows the Jewish Scriptures know there is no reference in the Old Testament <coughs> to um, a Messiah being raised. So the question becomes, what were Christians reading as we have this? And and we know what they are. There's at least two. First one's from Hosea chapter 6. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now, do you notice the pronoun? 
It's plural. Again, this is the prophet talking to Israel as a nation, but yet here's clearly after two days, the third day being raised. And in light of the experience of the resurrection, Christians look at this, of course. Uh, another one, that is, and this is, this is actually one of the very first images that's ever portrayed in Christian art in the catacombs going back to the early 2nd century. Uh, I didn't put it there, but the artwork's actually quite horrid, but uh, the, the point comes across. Uh, it is a serpent, sea serpent. The, the it's not a whale type thing. The story of Jonah being in the, bel the, the belly of the fish for three days. By the way, the Hebrew says whale. It says fish. So it's a very, very large fish. Uh, only to come out again and live again, and this became a central image. And we begin to see this in early Christian art. This is, this is actually one of the early carvings of it. Uh, this is probably about 4th century. So later Christians would see the fulfillment of hope not just in the death and resurrection, but in the whole life. So as near as we can tell, the, the idea of fulfillment was originally associated with the death and resurrection. But by the time Mark writes his first gospel, we're looking not just at the death and resurrection, we're looking, in fact, at the whole ministry. Mark does not con even contain a Christian story. Do you remember where Mark starts? Baptism. Okay. So for Mark, he's really interested in the ministry of Jesus, which begins with the baptism. And there's a good chance that the actual original version of Mark did not even have a resurrection story. It ends with the empty tomb. So it's the ministry of Jesus that Mark actually portrays. Uh, he begins the story of Jesus with the uh, fulfillment of hope. Uh, the gospel begins, uh, the time was fulfilled when he came forward proclaiming the kingdom of God. And at the end of Mark, you find that the, the last thing that Jesus says is the, uh, that the scriptures are being fulfilled. So we have the whole life and ministry of Jesus bracketed with fulfillment. Uh, Jesus saw his own ministry in terms of fulfillment. Uh, we see this clearly at the beginning of his ministry. Remember that very famous story when Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke, returns to his hometown, to Nazareth, and he preaches a sermon. By the way, this is, this is a, a lesson. Never go to your hometown and preach a sermon. <laughs> Bad idea. Uh, when he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, uh, could be a couple things. One is, there is some evidence that in the ancient world that the Jews had something like our lectionary which is to say that there were certain passages of Scripture assigned to be read certain days. So if Jesus knew that and he selected the day to go, he could select which Scripture. There's also some evidence that sometimes the, the person who's being asked to speak got to choose what Scripture they wanted. And so he could say, hand me the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place wherein it is written. Now, if you know anything about Jewish worship, Normally, one week, you're, you're rolling out the scroll, and you, you're reading from it, and then you roll it up at the spot you left off, right? And the next week, you open it up, and wherever you left off, you begin reading. This sounds like that maybe there's a little bit of searching going on. You know, there's a particular passage I want to read, and maybe it's not the one that for that day. This is what he reads from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
rolls up the scroll, uh, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, in Jewish society in first century, teachers are always depicted sitting. So when a great rabbi, a great teacher sits down, that means, hush, folks, something important is about to be said. So he's now assumed the stance of a teacher, and Jesus is about to share with somebody. The eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him. It's a very dramatic moment. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. What Isaiah prophesied is being fulfilled as Jesus' ministry begins in your hearing. And, of course, the story then goes on from that. The quote that Jesus is drawing on is from Isaiah 61. And it's interesting because Jesus will return to this particular passage again and again and again. Do you remember the story when John the Baptist is in the prison and he sends one of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we wait for another? And Jesus sends back the message, go and tell John what you see and hear. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are right, and it's, it's, it's the punch list from Isaiah. Do you remember the, uh, the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor. Now, Matthew says poor in spirit, but Luke says blessed are comes back. Jesus' ministry seems to come back to the again and again. His actions also embody this. If you were to say, uh, what did Jesus do? Who did he go to? Do you remember? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, the ritually unclean. It's a punch list from Isaiah again. So not only is he teaching this, but most of his ministry seems to embody this kind of thing. Um, he systematically re reaches out to those people who in that day and time, that society had been uh, excluded for various reasons. He does some other very evocative things. For example, uh, he picks 12 disciples. I know we've talked about this before. If you pick 11, that sends a message. You pick 13, that sends a message. Actually, you pick 11, it sends nothing. You pick 13, it sends nothing. You pick 12, You've just ran the flag up the flagpole and sent a very loud message. Anybody remember what it is? Twelve tribes of Israel. What is the one of the greatest hopes of the first century? That God would bring back together that which is lost. And Jesus shows up with twelve disciples. And the message is Israel is being called back together. This is the real reassembling of the tribes and the scholars are, are are unified that that seems to be the message uh, we have a hope of the restoration of Israel the gathering of tribes the inclusion of those to be included fits for example Deuteronomy 30 then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you gathering you again from all the peoples uh, among whom the Lord your God has scattered you so this this hope of coming back together again even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you. There's a hope for gathering, and there's a man walking around with a walking parable saying it's about to happen. Uh, and there he will bring you back. Um, this is one of the things that the Messiah is expected to do. One of the most remarkable discoveries of the ancient world, and this dates from the time of Jesus, is a group of psalms, not in our Bible, but it's known as the Psalms of Solomon. And the Psalms of Solomon, Psalm 17 in particular, is a, is a long written document about what it is that people hoped the Messiah would do. 
And this is one of the best insights we've got of that. And this is what Psalm 17 says. He shall gather together a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness. So this, this hope of ingathering. The Apostle Paul. Many people for years have said Paul perverted the Christian faith. Paul just went off and got weird. You know, took the pure gospel of Jesus and did strange and bizarre things to it. Well, if you understand Jesus and you understand Paul, you can't say that. As a matter of fact, the evidence indicates is that Jesus and Paul are absolutely, totally synchronized in their message. Paul takes the radical inclusiveness of Jesus' message, which as far as we know, Jesus only dealt with in terms of the Jewish people. Paul extends it to everyone. But he does so based on promises from the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah, to the non-Jew and the Gentile. His whole ministry. Do you ever wonder, where, where does Paul get the idea? We know about the, the story on the road to Damascus, but by the way, you probably know this. Jews don't evangelize. They don't. They didn't in the ancient world. They don't today. You know, how do you become a Jew? Your mother's a Jew. Okay. The whole idea that you're going to go out and recruit people is just incomprehensible Jewish people. So where does the Apostle Paul get the idea that God has called him, a Jewish Pharisee, to go out into the world and tell the rest of the world, y'all come? No wonder they tried to kill him in multiple occasions. It's just totally not Jewish. Where did Paul get that idea? He got it from the Old Testament and from a vision of the prophet Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. Most scholars agree that this is, Paul never quotes this, but it's real clear that in the back of his mind, Paul has this in mind. This, um, and this is a passage that's actually quoted by Jesus too. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, do not let someone who's not a Jew but who has attached themselves to the Lord anyway. I'm not a Jew, but I'm attached to God. I believe in God. I'm faithful to God. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do you remember the temple in the first century and that wall and that sign? Any non-Jew that crosses this point is responsible for their own death. The whole idea of the, the kosher laws, the whole idea of circumcision, the whole idea of all those barrier markers distinguished the Jew, divided the human race into Jew, non-Jew, us, them. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The whole idea of holiness has just been shot out of the water, that Israel is the holy people set apart by God. For thus says the Lord, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, that's the Gentiles, the non-Jew, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, to the temple, right past the wall that says you can't enter, past the sign that says if you cross this point you will die, they're welcome. What really strikes a lot of scholars is there's not one word here about being converted first. Gentiles are welcome as Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews. If you know anything about the ministry of Paul, and the, his basic message was the Gentiles are welcome. They don't have to become Jews first. They don't have to obey Torah. 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable in my altar. Now, the only way you get your sacrifice to the altar, you're all the way inside the temple right outside of the Holy Holies. You crossed about four barriers and just brought your offering right up to the altar of God and it's accepted. For my house, remember Jesus quoting this, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There are no barriers. There are no walls. This is why another place in Galatians, Paul will say, for in Christ there is no male nor female, no slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile. Thus says the Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel. There's that gathering motif again. I will gather others of them besides those already gathered. The gathering, the ingathering, the coming together of this new Israel will include not just all the Jews who are scattered, but all God's people everywhere. Which, if you know anything about Paul's ministry, that is exactly what Paul understood himself to be doing. This becomes the driving image behind what Paul's doing. Uh, there's even another passage which says, when these Gentiles come to the temple, they will have a, an offering, and they will present it to the Lord, and it will be accepted. Do you remember at the end of Paul's life, what he was obsessed with was collecting the offering from all the Gentile churches, and he wanted to get it to Jerusalem? And this is what got Paul arrested and killed. He went to Jerusalem, and he was actually arrested there, taking that in. Why was the offering so critical to Paul? Because it, if it was accepted, it meant that the Gentiles were accepted as God's people, central to his faith and who he was. The message of Christmas is part with the joy, peace, love, hope, is a snapshot of a much larger message that includes the exact same thing. Paul and the four writers, four gospel writers, each affirm it in their own way. We've seen this, but Paul's words basically is in the fullness of time. God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem everybody. Gospel of Mark, first gospel, no Christmas story. Jesus came when the time was fulfilled and in fulfillment of the scriptures. Gospel of John, who we've not talked about, says this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. That's John's Christmas story. It's a theological statement rather than two Gospels, and we are truly blessed because of this. Two Gospels choose not to make just a statement, but to actually narrate a story and to proclaim the message of hope fulfilled through stories. So for the next two Sundays, what we want to do is to look at these two stories. We're going to begin with the one that we're the probably the most familiar with. It's the one that's read every Christmas Eve from the Gospel of Luke. What we want to do is not every verse. We want to get the big picture. How would this story have been heard in the first century when it was first heard? And some recent scholarship has shed some really interesting light on aspects of the story that we had filtered out. But recent scholarship can say, no, this is a part of the story. And then the next week we'll do the same thing with Matthew.